Hello, and welcome to Revolution 22's teaching podcast. We are a church from the downtown area in Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today and hearing this week's sermon. We pray that God's word will be received and will bear fruit in your life. Amen. It's good to see everyone. You may have a seat. And you made it. We made it. We're at the end of Romans chapter 16. Uh, If you're just joining us near the end, we've been doing this one chapter a week flyover of Romans from a very high level so that we don't lose the forest for the trees. And I hope it's been an encouragement for you. You know, as we get here to the end, when we were at the end of James, we talked about how an ending can really make the whole. And we talked about some different books where that's been true. And these are a couple of my favorite examples that I gave from James. Uh, this is the first one. Isn't it, it isn't often that someone comes along who's a true friend and a good writer. Charlotte was both from Charlotte's Web, which I got to teach as a third grade teacher, one of my first jobs. And it is a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done. It is a far, far better rest that I go to than I've ever known from A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. But the interesting thing is not only can it make it, but it has to be an appropriate ending. It has to work for for what you're doing in that moment. Like for instance, this ending here. The creatures outside look from pig to man, from man to pig, and from pig to man again. But already it was impossible to say which was which. That would be the weirdest ending to almost any book other than Animal Farm. You know, if you haven't read that book, that makes sense because of what's going on there. Similarly, if you were trying to set up an electronic device, let's say your phone, and you got to the end of the instruction manual and you saw this, with much love and affection, Jim Smith, senior technology writer, you'd find that kind of odd when you get there. And so things need to work together. And and we forget so often with Paul, as he's getting to the end here, that he is writing a letter. We forget that because it's been long it's been theologically deep. It's been challenging us on so many different levels, yet it, it still is a letter. And, and in Paul's day, there was very formal ways to put together letters, especially near the end. There were things that you just did if you were a good letter writer to make sure you, you kind of crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's. And as we said, Paul began his conclusion in chapter 15. He started in chapter 15, uh, verse 14, where Paul started talking about his travel plans. And then here he continues on with some familiar aspects that were common to letters in that day. And we see that he, he talks about a request for prayer last week as well. And then he goes on to a prayer wish for peace. And then here he starts out with his associates, who he's been with, an exhortation to greet one another, even his famous The Holy Kiss passage. Uh, warming exhortations that he gives. Uh, He has these eschatological wishes, like these future is what he's thinking, wishes and promises of what he hopes happens. His concluding grace, some greetings from his associates, and then his doxology. There's a lot of familiar pieces in here that, that, that his culture would have been expecting, looking for, thinking about. And in fact, when we look at Paul's other writings, we see that these don't all find their way back in exactly the same, but there's a lot of them that come back again and again. And I know this is too small to really read, but you can see all the passages that connect in other books that Paul has written with what he's just done here as well. I mean, if you're here and you're a kid and you've just gone through like the second or the third grade and you've learned how to write letters, you should be thankful that all you had to learn was, dear Mr. Eagie, sincerely, Katie, right? That was a much simpler way than what Paul is doing here. And there's a couple things to note when we look at all these different sections and then we see across Paul and how we see them stand out a little bit. We talked about last week how his travel plans is one of the things that really stood out. And that made sense, especially if Paul is trying to wrap up his travels sort of through the eastern part of the Roman Empire where he's been, and he's now heading north and west, trying to get himself all the way over to Spain. 
It's important for those people in Rome to know that, that that's changing. He's coming. He's going to be traveling. How's he going to get there? What is that going to look like? And in addition to that area, there's really three other areas that should pop out to us from his closing this week. His associates, his warning, and his doxology at the very end. Paul lists way more people in this section of his associates than any other letter that he's written. Almost 10 times as many in some places. He also has a warning section that jumps out of nowhere, as it were. Uh, Nothing connected anywhere previously in this letter. And then we get to this doxology that has a really beautiful symmetry with what he started with in Romans 1. So let's start with this associate section. You know, there's two kinds of associate statements. He has one very particular to Phoebe, and then he has one in general, this really big list. We're going to read them together, and then we're going to talk about them separately. So let's start here. It says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centria. And by the way, Jacob props. All of you all know, if you had to get up and read scripture, this was the passage you didn't want. This was the one that had all the names, all the cities, the thing that make all of us panic when you look at scripture. So well done, Mr. Barrett. I commend you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who, was, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They were well known to the apostles, and they, are, they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachus. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, uh, uh, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus. Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Great Philologus, Julia, Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. The trick is just say them fast like you know it's right and don't stop. You know, Paul starts this, this section with Phoebe. It seems likely that Phoebe was the one carrying this letter to the Romans because it would have been normal in that day to send a commendation with that person to help them along their way so that people would know that it really was from Paul and it would get her help as far as lodging, even people helping her get it to the right people, connecting her in the right ways. People did that with letters, with donations. It really helped them out. And Paul seems to know Phoebe fairly well. Uh, It says she's from Centria, which is only eight miles from Corinth. So while Paul was in Corinth for about 18 months, he probably got to know her really well. And if most of you have have heard about Phoebe, it's likely not because you're a great studier of the ending of Paul's letters and you found it just fascinating, the list of associates that he has. Uh, Phoebe has worked her way into the discussion about what are deacons, how do women serve in the church, and what does that look like? You know, Paul clearly uses the word for deacon, servant here, diakonos, yet that doesn't solve a whole lot for us because Paul uses that word in a lot of different places for all Christians, that we're all meant to serve and care for one another. In fact, our Lord Jesus says the same things in Matthew 20, 23, 11, Mark 9, 35, 10, 43, a ton of other verses. But what is helpful when we look here is that Paul does use the phrase, the servant of centria. This phrase of is helpful And when Paul tends to use that phrase, when he talks about the elders of Ephesus or the church of Ephesus, he tends to be talking about a position 
or a title. He does seem to be saying something similar here. He does seem to be saying that Phoebe is holding some sort of position, a titled position at the church of Centria called deacon. And Paul says some other really kind and important things about her in addition to that. He says that she's been a patron, a benefactor to him and others. And he wants people to know that she has been helping the ministry to move forward in many different ways. And, and that might even be part of her showing herself approved as a deaconess, that she's been caring about the ministry. And this is important because Paul's statements about Phoebe are echoing a bigger thing that he's going to say in this list of people. Now, this larger list that we looked at here had 27 individuals listed, maybe sort of. There's some debate about how do we split up those numbers. But of those 27 individuals, nine are women. And of those nine women, he says that five of them should be commended for their labor in the Lord. Paul is making a statement here by the people he's including, and he is saying that women matter for the work of ministry in the kingdom of God. Now, it's sad that this often gets confusing and is not said clearly enough. Women matter for the work of ministry in the kingdom of God. I think one of the reasons that gets mixed up is, is a general confusion that we get. I mean, look what Paul says here in Ephesians 4. He says that the job of leaders is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of Christ, that we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Right? That is the role. Ministry is what we all do. Ministry is when we engage with one another for the sake of building up each other, encouraging each other. It happens over dinners, at gospel community groups. It happens this morning when we fellowship with each other. It happens when we talk to those who maybe aren't even yet believers. You know, so often what makes us confusing is we think that what Ryan does right here, right now, is ministry. Or what all the elders are doing all the time is ministry. That that's the only definition of it. Our job is to equip you for the work of ministry. Me using my gifts is me ministering to you, but the major job is to try to equip you for the work of ministry. We're trying to equip you and help you, release you that you might go do what God has called you to do in your families, in your communities, in your business places, in your neighborhoods. Staff and other people, deacons, we don't have those formally yet, help us with that kind of equipping task to release you to go do what is real ministry, service before the Lord and sharing with others the beauty of the gospel that you have seen and, and how you want others to know and love that God as well. And you can see then how this gets confusing, even especially for, for women. In a church like ours, where we believe that men are called to be elders, that if you think that we are the only ones doing ministry, that women don't bring anything to the table. In fact, that might feel the same even for men as well. If you're not an elder, that you're not doing real important ministry. And that's not at all true. That's not at all what's going on. Everyone is out doing ministry for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are here to equip you, women included, and they are crucial to ministering well to one another. We need each other's gifts, men and women, encouraging us. We would agree with Paul that women can be deacons. That's something that we need to teach on more in the future, but we believe that women should and already are a part of helping the elders and our body be equipped for the working of ministry together. Women matter for the work of ministry in the kingdom of God. When we look at that list of Paul's associates, if you really want to nerd out, you can see a lot of other things. And I'm thankful for nerds because they point out some really good stuff in Scripture. And one of the things that we notice when we look at these lists of names is that almost all of them are Gentiles. On the one hand, that makes sense because just before this letter is written, the Jews were told to leave Rome and go back to Jerusalem. So it makes sense that we wouldn't see a whole lot of them there, but, but it's obvious that the gospel is taking root amongst the Gentiles. 
And then we see something else very interesting. In Greek and Roman culture, it was very common to name yourself depending on your social status. So you could look at names and tell what social sphere you were from. And almost all of these names are from slaves or freedmen. Super interesting. The gospel is making inroads through people who have been slaves, who have been freed from that slavery, and they are the ones that are primarily doing so much there. It makes me wonder, how often are we overlooking the very people that God is wanting to grow the gospel through? Here for Paul, it's slaves, but could it be widows, orphans, the poor? I mean, so often people who don't have much can very much so treasure the beauty of the greatness of God's grace and mercy because they know they need it so much. They have nothing to bring. So often it's those of us who live comfortably that think we might actually have something to put before the Lord that he might be pleased We also see in here at least three, maybe even five house churches. Now, again, house churches were a necessity back then. Uh, They weren't necessarily a strategy. Uh, Houses could only hold so many people, and that's where people met. So when you got to 80, which is a really big house meeting, you had to split off, go different directions. But it's one of those beautiful things to see already the glory of God growing through multiple different ways in this city, seeing different things happening on different levels, different sizes of groups of people meeting and doing what we do in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's one of the things that we want to value. We want to value the beauty of the different churches that are here in the valley that are all working for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to love all the different expressions and how God works through that, whether it's smaller churches than Rev, churches about our size at 300, whether it's larger churches, no matter where they're at, we want to be for God's people and for what God is doing through them. You know, aside from Paul's exhortation that, that women are valuable for ministry, the way he does that and just who he speaks to and who he names, we can also see another thing from this list about Paul. Paul wasn't a lone ranger. It's kind of weird that there's this proclivity amongst Christians in, in particular, whether it's from the pulpit, pastors that are the solo, only important person that does all the ministering, all the things that are good, or whether it's our, 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 our idea that we tend to go out and just do ministry by ourselves. We forget so often to partner. That's not at all how we see Paul. In fact, it's hard to think of a place when you look at the New Testament where you don't see Paul talked about ministering with others, working alongside other people that the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ would go out. That's a question for you then this morning. Are you actually partnering with others for the sake of the gospel? Are you finding other believers in your workplace that you guys might work together to engage those around you who aren't yet believers? Are you working with others to to reach out to your neighbors, to your friends, finding ways that you together can do more for the sake of the gospel than you might do alone? And we try to model that at the elder level with a plurality of elders who are all working together to shepherd and lead you, not as just one person, but as a group that want to see God glorified through what we're doing. You know, Paul moves on from this list of people, as we said last week, kind of setting the stage for him to come so they know that he's aware of them, that he's going to come visit them. And he moves on to these greetings that he wants to send from the places he's been. Yet, it's as though a thought interrupts him mid-sentence. And he starts here, he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Those ellipses are mine because it seems like Paul drifts off in thought and comes into and says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause division and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. 
but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent, as to what is evil. And God, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And this is a weird interruption. And nowhere has Paul talk, talked at all in the book of Romans about false teachers. In fact, the couple other times that we've ever seen him give exhortations in his, his letters, it, it's tied specifically to something that he's been talking about previously. He reminds them, yeah, don't forget that. Don't forget what I just taught you. Yet here, it feels like out of nowhere comes this idea. It seems as though he's thinking about this idea of greetings, sending greetings from the churches that he's planted up to those who are in Rome. And one of the thoughts that begins to build in his mind is the cloud that hangs over these churches of false teachers. Something that seems to be common there. Now, Paul doesn't bring up anything in particular. He doesn't tell us any false doctrine. It's some sort of heresy that he's fighting against here. He seems to be thinking in general, these false teachers who come out. And again, teaching doesn't have to be particularly about a particular heresy or a theology. It can be how we live, how we engage with one another, how we act, how people are demonstrating that falsely. From his description, we see that these people are divisive. They try to create obstacles for others. And he points out that their main characteristic is that they serve their belly is literally the word there. It's what they desire in their gut that that they go for first and foremost and that they are smooth talkers and flatterers. Paul knows that these kind of people are coming. It's part of what happens with churches. And he wants to give warning to those in Rome. And Paul's seen this before. When Paul was with the Ephesian elders in Acts, one of the first things he warns them about is this as he's leaving them for the first time. So what he says in Acts 20, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained by, with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Paul is seeing again in in speaking to the the Romans that that this this risk of false teachers is real and that they're going to be coming He wants to tell them not to listen to them. In fact, his advice is very simple. Avoid them. Just avoid them. Don't be a part of that project and what they're doing. Have nothing to do with these people. Whether there's dissension occurring within the body or even as he says to the Ephesian elders, someone from within, an elder that's rising up and creating that kind of dissension, have nothing to do with it. Avoid people who put obstacle in the ways of the others for their faith in Christ. And we can hear in this echoes of Romans 14 and 15, how we want to not put things in people's way that they might stumble. You know, where Paul in Acts is giving that encouragement to elders in particular, here in Romans, he's giving it to all Christians. And in fact, I would argue that perhaps the body at large has a chance to affect this better than elders can. Elders need to be on guard for false teaching, false ways of living, false ways of demonstrating it to one another. But when a body collectively looks when that's happening and says, we don't want a part of that. Even if we want to have a good conversation, we're not going to be about division. We're not going to be about stirring things up. I believe there can be an amazing move towards unity, peace, love, and charity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In a very real way, Paul says that that can be God beginning to crush Satan under our feet, not allow him to take us down the wrong path of not glorifying God through our unity. And as well as encouraging you to be a part of that solution, I think whenever we come to a passage like this, we have to ask ourselves, by chance, have I been this person? Am I being this person? 
Am I the kind of person when I don't agree with something, I stir up division? I, I go at it to put obstacles in people's ways and to expect them to, to, to kind of come to my position before engaging them lovingly and rightly. You know, do we put obstacles by asking them to, to put more added to their faith or to be more strict than God wants them in their conscience when we talked about that in Romans 14 through 15? None of us should want to fall into that category. The inference from Paul is that people who do that are clearly being used by Satan to pull apart the unity and the beauty that is the body of Christ. If that's you, repent of it. Seek help from brothers and sisters, leaders in your life to help hold you accountable to not be that kind of person. After this warning, Paul continues on with his greetings. And then he moves on to this closing doxology. He starts here, with this, he says, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. And so do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus, greets you. What a fun glimpse into the, the inner circle of what Paul has been doing over this last season as he's writing this letter. We have Timothy. Timothy, who he so often calls his beloved one, his son in the faith, who's been with him since the second missionary journey, we see is now still with Paul at the end of his third missionary journey. They've stuck together through thick and thin, caring for each other and for the gospel. (coughs) It's not exactly clear who Lucius is. It could have been Lucius of Cyrene, who we told is part of of the Syrian Antioch church in Acts 13, or could even be the evangelist Luke. Lucian is a different form of the word for Luke. Jason is likely Jason of Acts 17, who gave Paul a place to stay when he was in Thessalonica and helped him out there. We, we think that Sosipater was likely Sopater of Borea, who Luke tells us uh, was with Paul as he left Greece in Acts 20. And here's the cool thing about those first three names. They're all Jews. Here are Jewish brothers who've joined with Paul for the sake of spreading the gospel to the Gentiles. What a beautiful picture about the people of God caring that the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ would go forth to all the peoples and all nations and all places. Would that be said of Rev 22 that we are gathering together that we might go forth and take out the beautiful news of the gospel of Jesus? We have Tertius who says he's writing this all down for Paul. He's his scribe, his amanuensis. Gaius is the one who's been hosting Paul. Erastus, he seems to be a high-level uh, high city official, like a treasurer of the city, someone who Paul's obviously nodding to for his favor that he's given him while he's in Corinth, but seems to be a believer as, all, as well. And we don't know much about Cordus other than Paul knows him, and he's in the list. What, what a beautiful example of the unity of Christians working together for the sake of the gospel and for loving the people of God. You know, Paul ends with a doxology. This is what he says here. He says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. And I don't know whether Paul went back and, and had, had Tertius read him what he had said at the very beginning, or if these points were so embedded in Paul as he was writing this letter. But he goes back through multiple different aspects of what he started with back in the beginning of Romans, and this time praying that what he had hoped would happen has happened now for the Romans, that through his letter, God has worked in them and through it for his glory. 
He says multiple things here. He says, Paul, Paul hearkens back to the God who is able, this very powerful God. The God who in chapter one, he said, was going to provide the son descended from David in the flesh, the very son of God brought in power, according to scriptures, who we would see his power through the resurrection from the dead. He said that that gospel is the very power of God, Paul says, for salvation of all people. And Paul started by saying that one of his original goals of giving the Romans something was that they might be strengthened in chapter 111. And that this, and he's praying now that that has happened and that God would have strengthened them through his writing. In core to what Paul has shared is the gospel, which he said in Romans 1.1 was the mission that God has set him up for. You know, a gospel which is about Jesus Christ and that declares that God will judge all people in Christ someday. And Paul at the ending here glories that this will all now happen through the revelation of the mystery that God has made known, the mystery that we now know that God had a plan through his Messiah, the very God-men, to bring us back to himself, that he would live the righteous life that we couldn't live, that he would take the death that we deserved, that because of his resurrection and power, he would give us his very righteousness and his Holy Spirit that we could walk with him daily. How beautiful is that? And this, Paul keeps saying, is all done in accordance with the prophetic writings in Romans 1-2, things that God promised beforehand. And all of this is to bring about the obedience of faith for God's namesake, Paul tells us, amongst all the world, Gentiles included. You know, I pray that, that seeing this high-level overview of Romans, chapter by chapter, has helped us to love and value the beauty of God and what he has for us through his word. In Romans 1 through 8, we saw the desperate need of all people, Jews and Gentiles, that we need the salvation of God through Jesus Christ, that we might be brought back into right relationship with him. I pray that when you think about the gospel and its implications for you, you find yourself back in Romans 1 through 8 again and again, soaking and steeping in what Paul says there, that it might raise your affections for a God who has loved you so deeply. And then as someone who came up to me right after we got done with Romans 1 through 8 said, are we going to continue on? They rightly noticed that so often churches stop after that. Who can be frustrated hearing about the gospel? And as we often all saw together, when you get to Romans 9 through 11, it gets a little more difficult, but it's still equally beautiful. Wonderful when we look into the glories of a sovereign God who we cannot ever fully understand, who hasn't given us all the answers to every little piece exactly the way we would want. Who would want any other kind of God? Who would want a God that is below us that we can study and examine every piece? How amazing is it that we have a God that is so great, so wonderful, so beautiful, that God can save. That God can change hearts. That God can move every mountain of sin in your life that you might know him and follow him better. That is the God that we serve. And then if you're like me, we all probably wanted Paul to go back to the law, back to a list of things for us to do, to check off, to say that we could now prove how wonderful and loving we are back towards God, and Paul won't go there. In fact, Paul gives us exactly what we need in Romans 12 through 15. He reminds us of the beauty of the love of God and how out of that, all we owe is love to one another. He's drawing us back, not into rules, but into relationship. That we might realize that we're to come to relationship in God through Jesus Christ. And that we're to come to relationship with one another. To know what truly would be loving to our brothers and our sisters. That they might see the gospel of Jesus Christ in us more fully. 
You know, imagine, and that's another place that we were challenged, was this idea of how much do we give up for our brothers and sisters? Would we even be willing to give up our preferences, trusting that they are, are engaging in following the Lord as dearly as we are, begging him to give illumination to our life and find that we can trust him then in the choices that they make and the choices that we make in our conscience. Romans is a beautiful letter. I pray you come back to it. Read it again and again. Find in it this God who has loved you deeply and who is inviting you into that love, asking you to cry out, Abba, Father, to know him deeply and intimately and to know that he is smiling on you as a beloved son and daughter, that through Jesus Christ, he sees you, he knows you, and he still says, I love you. How amazing is that? And today, as we take communion, I want to encourage you, behold in that Jesus Christ. Not only has he died for our death, not only was he raised in power to give us his righteousness, to give us his Holy Spirit, but as Paul says here in this doxology, he is the one able to do all that we need in our lives that God would receive glory through us. That should be our prayer this morning, that we could live our lives to the glory of God loving and cherishing the things that Paul has cherished throughout Romans. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, thank you for giving us Paul and having him write a letter. Lord, thank you for your Holy Spirit that inspired and worked through Paul that we might know your very heart, your very joy and love for us. Lord God, would we be slow to run back to the law? Would we find in it only death, only condemnation, and would we find in Jesus Christ, by faith in his grace and mercy, life, life and relationship with you, knowing that you smile on us as your beloved children. Father, there's so much to learn, so many things to see. Father, would we find in this company of believers a joyful camaraderie as we work together, so broken, <laughs> to know and love you to see others know and love you? Would we find great desire for unity and peace, forgiveness for where we fail? Lord God, thank you for everything that you've done for us in Jesus Christ and that it is through him, through his work on our behalf, through his perfect life and the fact that you give it to us through grace alone, by faith. Lord God, thank you for that fantastic gift. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.